Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about living a graceful life. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to download our app. Our app is available for Android and iOS, and it is a great way to get the content that we put out as a church You can listen to our sermons, like the one you're listening to now, but you can also watch all of our videos, sermons, and otherwise. It's an easy way to know about all of our events, and you can even watch our services live on our app. And so I hope that you'll consider downloading it if you're consuming our content anyway. You can get it by going to wilsonville.church slash app. That's wilsonville.church slash app. Or you can search Creekside Bible Church in the App Store or the Google Play Store, and you'll find it there too. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. I hope that it'll help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. This may come as a surprise, but I've never been the most graceful person. Um, I, I played sports throughout my life, as those of you that have been around know, and nobody ever would have described me as graceful. They might have described me as good or, you know, athletic or, uh, I don't know, a million other ways, but never would anybody have ever described me as graceful. And I think one of the reasons, this this is going to, I know, kind of be maybe counter what you would think, but I think one of the reasons that nobody would describe me as graceful is because I'm so intense and I'm so competitive that being graceful, making things look good is really it's really very secondary to me whenever I start to play a sport. Uh, I think I told this story not long ago, and so you'll have to forgive me. I told it to somebody, and maybe on the stage. It all runs together in my life. But if I told you individually, I apologize. If I told it in a sermon, I apologize. But I, uh, one summer, was playing summer basketball, and so these games, they mean virtually virtually nothing at all. I mean, there's, there's no reason for these games except to get better. And we are getting beat by 40 points. Did I tell you this story? Does that sound familiar? Okay. Uh, so we're getting beat by 40 points or something. It was at Sprague High School in Salem. Man, I did not like them. And, and we're down by 40 points in a summer league game that means nothing, absolutely nothing at all. And a ball is going into the stands. And I dive for this ball and I land on my side and and like it ends with people thinking I ruptured my appendix jumping into the stands in this game that's meaningless and we're down by 40 and there's like two minutes left and and it it was so ungraceful uh it was so ungraceful in fact and I this is whoever I told this to recently I I remember my uncle who actually I think I get a lot of my competitive nature from and uh, I think that the fiery side of me probably comes from my uncle more than anybody else he looks at me and goes, what were you thinking? Like, just like, like almost pity. Like, I, I thought you were an intelligent kid right up until a few minutes ago. Uh, and I survived and everything like that. I remember this other, this other situation where I was playing uh, a, a Legion baseball game at Chemeketa Community College and and uh, I'm going for this ball, I'm playing shortstop, and I'm back behind the third baseman, and, and I don't know what they were doing, but they had like, you know those metal fence posts that you can, like they got the little, I don't know, bumps on them, and you pound them, are those fence posts? I, I don't, I've never used them for fence posts, but I've used them to prop things up. So they had those metal fence posts like holding up a temporary fence, and I'm going for this ball, and 
and I like lunge out for it and I end up hitting on one of those and getting stuck. Like it's stuck on, not in my body. That was way worse. Like I appreciated that you cared, but in my shirt. So I'm kind of like hanging like this. And I remember coming back to the field and, and I look at the third baseman, Justin, good friend of mine. And I say, was I close? He's like, Dude, that ball was like 25 feet past the fence line. <laughs> and so I just, for no reason, am stuck on a fence. Uh, I've, I've never been the most graceful, especially when it comes to the sports. And I think it's because I'm so competitive. And here's, here's one of the main ideas I want to give you today. Well, while team sports and sports where you're competing against another person live, you know, if you slow them down and put them in slow motion, they can look graceful. Uh, Sports or moments where you're competing against somebody else, they're usually not defined with the phrase graceful. Usually we define things that are artistic, right? Like, for example, uh, ballet, the, the metaphor that we've been kind of carrying through this series. You, you can think of gymnastics as being graceful. You think of synchronized swimming, I'll return to the pool later, uh, as being graceful. But usually, like when we talk about football, we, we don't, unless we're like really big fans and we're just, you know, trying to be excited about football and a catch. We usually don't say, wow, football, what a graceful game. And, and I think that what happens in football or even basketball and baseball is that they're less graceful than the arts because of the competition. When you are fighting somebody, when you are going up against somebody, when the other person is making what you're trying to do unpredictable, then it causes you to be less than graceful. Today we're going to finish this series of sermons by looking at a passage of scripture that a lot of the translations of the Bible call final instructions. And we're doing this series on living gracefully under pressure. I kind of built it on this simple idea that I think everybody agrees with, whether you like the Bible or not. You, you probably agree that we all face pressure, like pressure builds whether we make the perfect decisions or we don't, whether we, we are you know, doing smart things or stupid things. Pressure is always building in our lives. It comes from a million different sources. I mean, it comes from our parents. It comes from our jobs. It comes from our friends. It comes from our spouses. Pressure is, is always there, and it seems like it increases you know, with more responsibility or whatever and, and we've seen these things in the series a graceful life is a gospel life the more that you center your life around the story of what Jesus did for us that you can read about in the Bible the more graceful you'll become the strength of your faith will determine the gracefulness of your life when pressure mounts love is the key characteristic of the beauty that defines a graceful life life hope and where you're going keeps grace flowing and if you live to please God you will live gracefully under pressure but today at the end of this book in the bible called first thessalonians there's these final instructions and and they seem on first glance to be kind of a little bit disconnected and it's like the author his name's paul like he's just saying here's a few things that i kind of need to get out off my chest i need to put down on paper before i wrap up this letter but i think it all is kind of centered around this idea that when we are trying to be competitive it's going to be difficult to be graceful to say it the opposite way I guess my proposition for this morning is simply this we live more gracefully when we don't compete with others but instead seek the good of others here's how he begins this kind of final instructions in first Thessalonians 5 12 and 13 now we ask you brothers and sisters 
to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. This is a little bit of an awkward thing to preach on because it's talking about how you preach or how you treat pastors and I am one. It's like telling you to be nice to me. It's a little bit funny. I'm sorry if you're a visitor. I promise that I don't preach on this every week or anything like that. But really what he's saying is, is that you need to be a person who treats your Christian leaders well. But first, just a a message on what your Christian leader should be like because he says some things here. He says they should work hard. This is an interesting Greek word that translates to work hard. It means to beat out. That is to be weary. The idea is to toil. Uh, Christian leaders, people that lead churches, should be known for their hard work. Christian leaders should care for you. That's the other thing he says there is a word that that shows us that this is primarily about pastors. It's a word that, that can mean to set over, like to put into a leadership position, but with the idea of caring for somebody or giving attention to. No Christian leader should be in charge but not care about their people. They can be in charge, but they must at the same time always be caring for people, giving attention to the people that God has placed under them. Let me be clear, that's going to look different in a lot of different settings. Uh, I will never be the guy that will visit every single person every time they're sick, but I know some people that do ministry do that very thing. But I hope that I'll always be a guy that is that is paying attention to your needs needs and making sure that we as a church are doing our best to help you move forward in your spiritual life and in your daily life. And then the last thing he says is to that they should admonish you. This is a description of Christian leadership. That is to warn. It's about showing people the sinfulness of their sin and the consequences of those sins. Uh, look, this is not like, I don't bring this up to say you should be you know, looking at every move I make and making sure that I'm following through on those things or whatever. But I do think in the American church culture today, we have, we have, we've made it so that all we ask of our Christian leaders is that they, they have some level of, uh, vision sharing ability that they are gifted communicators and and that they're passionate but we have really let off too many christian leaders i think on being hardworking and caring and being willing to admonish people to warn them about their sins and i think that if the american church and i'm a pastor so i'm talking to myself here as well if the american church is going to be strong again then we need to get back to having Christian leaders who are working hard, caring for people, and willing to admonish people, warn people about their sins. What we've done with Christian leadership in our country is we've said, as long as you can can make it grow, then that's good enough for us. But when Paul describes Christian ministry, he says they should be working hard, caring for people, and admonishing them. But this isn't about, this, this verse, these verses are not about Christian leadership as much as they are about how we should cre- treat our Christian leaders. It's not a command to pastors, it's a command to people who aren't pastors, who have pastors. And, and what's interesting in the history of the church throughout its existence, since Jesus rose again and the Holy Spirit came down and started this whole thing called the church, there's been this, this kind of pendulum swing in how we treat Christian ministers. And, and on one side, and, and this has been bad for the church in its history, 
The church has said Christian leaders are better than everybody else. Whatever they say goes, they are to be feared and obeyed. They are the only ones who are to do the ministry. And everybody else, they just kind of sit and listen to what these Christian ministers say. On the other side, there has been times and moments and movements in Christian history where the pastor and Christian leaders are, are, are not placed in a position of leadership. We, we see people say things like, well, everybody is to be a minister. That is true. The Bible says that, that we are a royal priesthood. But at the same time, there are clearly positions given in the Bible of authority and leadership. But there's been movements to say there will be no leadership. There will be no head. The pastor, the Christian leaders, they're not important at all. I hate to throw her under the bus, but I was at a lot of graduation parties yesterday. And, and uh, I, I asked this little girl, I said, I said to her, um, do you go to church with, with this, this person who, who just graduated? And, and she said, we used to, but now we've started a church in our, in our house. And, and I'm, I like house churches. That's great. I think in a, another life, I would have had a church in my house. But, but then I said, oh, is like your dad going to pastor the church? And she said, he's the host. As if a church, and, and she didn't, you know, we didn't start talking about the theology behind that statement. But, but it's like to say, we don't really need a pastor as long as somebody can open their doors. And that isn't biblical either. And, and so in this passage, we are reminded that, that these kind of pendulum swings are, are wrong and I would say dangerous for the church. We should never elevate the pastor or a Christian leader into a place where they have all the authority and we don't read the Bible ourselves and and you aren't doing anything because it's their job and we see some of that in the church today. There are a lot of small churches especially who say it's the pastor's job to do it all. We'll show up on Sunday mornings and critique how well he did. But on the other side, we need Christian leaders. We, we need them, and, and the Bible commands them. It's a part of the earliest churches, and it's been a part of church forever. And in this passage, it shows us that these pastors should be working hard, caring for people, and admonishing people. But it also says here that, that the people in the church should be a people that hold them in the highest regard. They honor them. They care for them. They care about them. They acknowledge them. That's the first thing it says. You hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. I've, I, man, I have heard some stories um, about the way that people treat their pastors. And I think, I think that I can say these things because this church has been so good to me. Uh, like I'm not speaking from a position of bitterness or... <laughs> Like, you need to do better because I, I cannot imagine having shown up as a church as a young pastor and pastoring and having it be any better than the way this church has treated me. And I mean that with my entire heart. Uh, I mean, this church has loved me. Uh, even when I've messed up, they've cared about me. But I've heard incredible stories from pastors in our denomination, from other pastors, from books. And it's it's horrible. It's It's awful. I mean... I know this story, like, uh, just, it's, it's so sad. Uh, this guy that I know, he came to the Northwest to be, uh, to help out this, this small little church, and he, had a, he has a lot of kids. He has even more kids now. They've adopted many. They have many that are their biological children, but he came from, from uh, the South to help out this church. They promised him a certain amount of money, 
He got here and he got his first paycheck. He was also raising support, asking people for money, which is a humbling experience. And, and he gets his first paycheck and it's less. And he just goes to somebody that writes the checks or whatever and says, hey, you know, no big deal, but this is off. And they're like, oh, we just decided to pay you less. You know, I moved my seven kids out here and I'm trying to pay for my rent or whatever, no big deal. So then he's, he doesn't do anything. He, he starts to grow this church by saying, to, he's working another job, he's teaching, and he, he's saying to people at his school that he knows, hey, my church is awful, but will you be a part of it uh, in order to help it get better? It's a it really interesting growth strategy. We always try to build up our churches like they're better than they are, but I kind of like it. I'm going to start telling people you guys are awful and they should come <laughs> to our church. That should be your line to your neighbors. Hey, I go to this terrible church, but... I really like you and I think you could help. And so, so he starts to, this church starts growing with this model and, and he shows up at the church one day and, and there's a meeting going on that he doesn't expect. It's like on his day off and, and he's done nothing. He's made no changes at all and he shows up at the church and he's been talking about loving the city of Portland and he shows up and this meeting this is, this is unreal. This is, I can't believe this exists. This meeting exists because they are, are angry that someday he is going to allow gay marriages in their church. All he has said is that we need to love the city of Portland and they call this meeting behind his back. So then they have this, this vision casting ceremony and and, and he, he shows up and, and they've been building towards this for a long time. They're going to start trying to make some changes because this is a dying little church and, and it, it needs to make some changes, frankly. And, and he thinks people are on board. He thinks it's exciting. And, and he shows up at this meeting and it's like an ambush. The people are against him. And I don't remember all the details of the story, but he has an autistic son and somebody said to him at this church, they said to him, all you do is hang out with your retarded son. And then he continues to pastor the church, but he stops having his family come to the church. He, they don't come to the church anymore. They're going to another church and he's still pastoring the church. And he shows up one Sunday and these guys in the parking lot stop him and, and, he says, and they say to him, if you take another dollar from this church, we're going to turn you into the IRS. For no reason. He's not breaking any rules. And he's like, oh, fine, you call the IRS. You can't get a hold of him anyway. Um, and like, I mean, he's like, go ahead. I don't really understand. And, and it culminates with him in the middle of that Sunday, in the middle of the sermon, saying, I quit. I can't do this anymore. And, and then an argument ensues and starts. And, and I, I tell you that story. It's a, it's a horrible story. But it's indicative of what a lot of people have seen in, in church and they've been hurt by it. A lot of people competing and it seems like as people compete, they turn their eyes to the person who, who's supposed to have the most authority and power in a church, right? The pastor. And they turn their wrath against that person. And it's competition. And it's competition against the guy who's being paid. And, and it turns into something that is far from graceful. If you're a person who's been hurt by, by seeing a pastor torn down, I just want to say that's not the way that Jesus intended it. That's not the way that the Bible describes it those things are awful and they're anti-christian they are against what christianity stands for and, and is about and here it says it says hold them in high regard 
And I think we need to get back to that, not in our church, but in other churches. And if you, man, I'm telling you, like be a person who defends the pastor of the other churches in our town where you're from. Like when somebody comes to you and they say to you, hey, you know what my pastor's doing? I can't believe it. Like you just do your best to just be on the pastor's side. Like maybe sometimes the pastor will be wrong, but your first gut reaction should be, how do I support this pastor? How do I, how do I help this person show them the love that they, that they should show them? It's an epidemic, especially in small churches. This is an epidemic. People tearing at their pastor and not raising their pastor up. I heard another story that is so different than that story, and I loved it. It was a little video that I saw. I had no personal connection to this church at all. But this pastor in the middle of a sermon had like a breakdown. He like just lost it and said, look, I, I can't do this anymore. I, I give up. There's too much pressure. There's too much stress. It's, it, it, I, can't, I can't carry on. And so this guy in this video that, that was talking, he, he just was broken hearted. And so he, he said, look, I, I reached out to four or five guys in my church that I knew uh, were trustworthy, that wouldn't gossip, that, that could... That, that were strong men of faith, and we said, look, we will not let this man fall like this. This is not the end for him in ministry. We are going to commit to every single morning before we go to work praying for this man, and we will do it until this man is our pastor again and restored. And they did it for a year, and that pastor once again pastors their church. That's what it should be like. That's what the American church should be known for. That's how we should treat those who are Christian ministers. I'm telling you, as long as we're competing, even if it's with the pastor, we'll never live gracefully. Listen to what it says next. 1 Thessalonians 5.13, live in peace with each other. I just, I don't know what your church experiences are, but I know, I, I think all of this is important, not because of anything happening at our church. There's wonderful peace here. I am so thankful for the spirit of peace and unity and love for the way people care about each other in, in this church. And so on one hand, what I want to say to you this morning is keep going. Let's continue to be more unified. Let's find more peace amongst us. Let's continue to be a church that loves each other and builds each other up because it is biblical and we are in line with what the Bible is saying but on the other hand I need to just say like I'm sorry if you've been hurt by the church if you've seen disunity if you've seen people not be at peace if your experience as at church as a kid was that somebody got mad at your family and decided to tear them down and talk behind their backs and tell other people that they did things that they didn't actually do I mean if that's your experience it's not the right experience and it's not indicative of what church should be I think one of the reasons that the American church is struggling is because people have these singular experiences in their heads and they think that's what church is like. And if church is like that, then I don't want to be a part of it at all. But that's not what church is always like and it's not what church is supposed to be like. It's supposed to be a place where people live in peace with each other. And one of the greatest things about church is that people that would not at otherwise be at peace with each other are at peace with each other in the church. People of different races and people with different socioeconomic backgrounds. And what I love in our church is how politically 
divided this church is. I mean, there are people, you know, looking around like, which one of them's wrong, you know? I mean, uh, like, this is, for our denomination, it has to be one of the most politically wide churches in the world. And what's cool, what I love, is that in this church, it's not like we never talk about politics. We have a rule in our small groups, but I hear people talk about politics, but there's still peace and unity when people disagree with each other because our service of Christ goes beyond what we think about how the political world ought to work one of the great things about church is that it's a group of people that are so vastly different and they come together and when it's done right there's peace there's love there's unity there's mutual care for each other live at peace with each other and then he says and i love this because we think what what we read next the, the very first line it can it can seem so different than living at peace with each other because sometimes we think living at peace is just not interacting with another person. Maybe you grew up in a home like that, right? Like if you wanted to have peace, then you just didn't say anything. It's called passive aggressive. You may still be that way. If you grew up in a home like that, you probably don't know. Um, but like, I mean, there's, there's whole families that are structured this way. Like, like we just won't talk about it. As long as I'm sitting on the other side of the couch, then there's enough peace to get by. But listen to what's said next. It's not about just saying like, oh, we'll show up on Sundays and we won't interact with each other. Listen to this. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Man, I, first I just want to point out, just kind of as a side note, that, that the things described in this passage are the things that will prevent us from living a graceful life in ourselves like if we're unruly, basically the word there for idle and disruptive is, is kind of like a person who just no longer cares to live gracefully. Like they're not trying to live in a way that pleases God, the thing we talked about last week. They're not trying to live a life that is centered on the gospel. They're not trying to live a life of faith, hope, and love. They're just not giving any effort. And I'm telling you, if you're a person who's just unruly, if you're just living to live, if you're just doing what you want and you're not really thinking about how that connects to this thing called Christianity, or if you're not a Christian, if you're just living the way you want, but you're not thinking about how it connects to this being called God, then you'll never live a graceful life. But beyond that, like when you're disheartened, it's hard to live gracefully. I mean, when you, when you are just struggling and, and life is hard and maybe you're depressed and you're sad or things aren't going the way that you want, you're discouraged, it's hard to continue to live gracefully. And when you're just weak, when you've been fighting the battle for a long time, when you've been trying so hard and you just never feel like you'll break the addiction or get over the thing or learn how to do, when you get to that point, it's hard to live a graceful life. And so what's Paul's solution? It's hard to live gracefully when all those things are true or when one of those things are true. The solution for Paul is that the other people that you go to church with would step up and they would be the anecdote. They would help you. I mean, look, when somebody's unruly, we warn them. This isn't to pastors. This is to other people in the church. If you know somebody in the church that is blatantly disregarding what God would have for their lives, it is your job by the authority of God's word to warn them. This word warn, I know that sounds horrible. Like It sounds like, if you don't stop, I'm going to punch you in the face you know like that's what we think of that's what I think of when I think of Warren I told you I'm not always the most graceful person but uh, I mean we have this idea like I will beat you up if you don't stop doing it but the the idea of warning here is more like this is wrong and dangerous 
Like if you saw somebody that was walking too close to an edge and you knew that if they fell off that edge, they would die. It would be, it would be responsible and good for you to warn them, right? I mean, this other, this other thing, notice these other things like, and if you know somebody who's disheartened, it's your job to encourage them. That's beautiful, right? I mean, you don't just look around your church and say, wow, they're sad, that's a bummer. You do something to encourage them, to lift their spirit, to help them keep going. And if you see somebody who is weak, you help them. Say, hey, I noticed that you're struggling in this area. I will do my best to help you. I want to help you. I'm going to, to help you. If someone is disheartened, they feel like giving up, we encourage them. If someone's weak, we help them. If somebody is living sinfully and, and just disregarding what God would have for them, then we warn them. I thought of it like, like this, like swimming. Uh, I mean, a graceful swimming is like that sport. I just slipped my mind. Uh, uh, synchronized swimming, right? If you ever watch synchronized swimming, it's pretty incredible. They're dancing underwater. They're holding their breath for an hour and a half. It just doesn't seem possible. And they're all perfectly in sync. It, it's this wonderful picture of, you know, grace in motion. And that's what we want to look like. We want to be graceful when it comes to our lives. We want to have a beautiful life. We want to live well no matter the pressure. And, and, and yet, so many people that sit next to us and even us, we feel more like a person who, who's in swim lessons. That's how I feel in my own spiritual life and I've been a Christian for a long time and, and so I brought the swimming pool. My daughter's in swim lessons, right? And, and I would never, I would never, she's three years old for those of you who don't know me, be like, all right, Hazel, here you go. Throw her in and say, let's see that synchronized swimming, baby. You got this under control. We would never do that. But that almost is the expectation when it comes to modern American Christianity. We just like throw people in the pool, say, hey, I'm glad you have a relationship with Jesus. I hope you'll do it beautifully. Uh, when the pressure rises, when you're underwater, like still try to do it right, you know? That's dumb. But what this passage says is that's not the way that it should be. It, it says, first of all, that we warn people who are doing it wrong. I would be a terrible dad, right? If, if my daughter was doing something dangerous around a swimming pool and I didn't say anything to her. Just last night at the final graduation party of the day, she said, I want to feel it to see if it's warm. They said, there was a swimming pool there. I said, sure, jump in, you know, see what happens. No, I'm like, hey, lean over carefully. I came alongside her. I made sure that she didn't get top heavy and just top right over, topple right over and fall into the water. When she runs around a swimming pool, she, I, what do I say? Don't run, it's dangerous. One of the great things to happen to me is, is last summer we went out to the swimming pool that we get to go to because of where we live. And, and, and this kid apparently, just 20 minutes before we had gotten there, had run around the swimming pool and it fell. And this kid, I mean, there was ambulances and this kid's whole face was wrapped up. And now when Hazel runs, I say, remember the kid? <laughs> remember that? Do you want to have the ambulance come? Do you want to have your face wrapped? No, she doesn't. She's scared of everything. Slow down, slow down. This is not a good idea. Or when she's getting too comfortable and, and her teacher at the swim lesson is not paying attention. It's like, Hazel, you sit further back. You hold on tighter. You make sure you don't go off the step. I would be a terrible parent. I would be a terrible man 
if I wasn't willing to warn my daughter, if I just dropped her into a swimming pool and said, you probably can be synchronized now, make it look graceful, honey. But at the same time, I don't just warn her. I mean, she, swim lessons are a, they're a wild ride, man. Like, I never know how my kids are going to respond, if they're going to like the teacher, if Hudson's going to be in a good mood or a bad mood. It all is dependent on their nap. And so I'm a cheerleader, right? Like, a lot of my time at swim lessons is simply being a cheerleader. Hazel knows that I will cheer louder than all of the other parents. When she is sad because she doesn't get the teacher she wants, she's having a, a breakdown on the side of the pool, crying. I'm sitting by her and saying, you can do it. I promise they're not going to let you go. I promise it's going to be okay. When she was stuck not being able to pass stupid level two, I hate level two. You have to, she has to hold her breath underwater for 10 seconds. She doesn't even know how she does now, but at the time when she starts, she didn't even know how to count to 10. How are you supposed to do 10 seconds when you know how long 10 seconds are? I mean, I am the guy like, you can do it. You can do it. Don't be sad. You'll get to level three. Someday you will be able to swim. Encouragement's a big deal. Like whenever we're trying to get better at something, whenever we're trying to live more gracefully, it, it is discouraging at points to say, I'm not getting it. I'm just not getting the job done and I'm trying and we need people to come alongside of us and say, I promise you'll get there someday. We especially need people who have already gotten there to come along alongside us and say, someday you'll be able to swim. I was a swim lesson dropout. I've told Hazel that. I think about, um, this just popped into my head so take it for what it's worth, but uh, I am the godfather not just in general, but to a young man named Ryder in this church. And uh, last year, Ryder fell off. When was that? I don't know. How Like a year ago? I'm looking at his mother. Uh, uh, he fell off the monkey bars and broke his arm. He's six years old. And uh, I showed up to the hospital because they have 100 kids and um, the family. And uh, they're good friends, so I can say that. They don't literally. But I showed up to the hospital because Angela had called me and said, I can't get a hold of Josh, her husband, Ryder's dad. And, and, and I... I like, I just can't handle all the kids and riders, you know, crying, and this is bad. Can you come down here? And so I come down, and, and like, I, I look at Ryder, and I say, hey, this sucks, but I broke my arm when it, I was six years old, falling off the monkey bars, and it totally changed Ryder's perspective. It's like, mine's still straight. It still works. I'm telling him all about the hospital visit and how I, mine was worse. It's not that nice, but it was worse, and, and how I had to get put to sleep, and I woke up to a Snoopy phone, and it was kind of cool, and, and people signed my cast, and I remember my dad buying me some toys, this little gun that I could shoot at a light, and it was like the whole experience ended up being good, and, and just the encouragement of knowing somebody had dealt with it before completely changed Ryder's perspective. He also had been drugged up about a minute before I got there, so <laughs> that was helpful too. And then when people are weak, you help them. Like I get in the pool with Hazel and, and when she's trying to swim and when we're doing something fun, when it's not swim lesson time, I, I show her how to kick her legs because her legs go floppy and, and I try to help her see how long 10 seconds is when she's under the water and I yell out at the top of my lungs when she was passing level two, one, two, three, so that she could know when 10 seconds was over. I, I help her where she's weak. I encourage her where she's discouraged and I warn her where she doesn't know the dangers and this is exactly what we should be like with each other in the midst of a church 
If your church experiences are different than that, I'm sorry. Uh, this church will not be perfect. If you're a person who's like, well, I've showed up here and they got it all figured out. But I, I can tell you we're doing a pretty good job. But we're always trying to do a better job of being a church that is spiritually connected. We're helping each other. We're helping each other live gracefully. Now look, there's another side. You need to help people. You need to be a person that does that. Because somebody's trying to live gracefully that's sitting next to you. And there's pressure in their life. And it's hard. And so you need to help them. But also you need help. Like we need other people who can speak into our lives, who can warn us, who can help us, who can encourage us. And if you're a person who's like, I'll just do this spiritual thing alone. I got it under control. I'll never open up. I'll never share. I'll never be part of a small group. I'll never, you know, go to dinner at people's houses. I'll never really engage. Then you're not going to have the help you need to live a graceful life. It just won't happen. But here's, here's, oh man, I love this. I love this so much. I was talking about it this week. In all of it, we are to be patient with each other. It's a word that means long-suffering or slow to anger. Man, I'm just, I'm so fast to give up. Like, like, man, that person's always going to need warned and they're all, like, don't we just insert always, right? They're always going to need warned and they're always going to be discouraged and they're always going to need help and so I just, I kind of, I just rolled my eyes there. I kind of just rolled my eyes and say, hopefully they'll figure it out. I can be that guy so quickly. And this is like, you, you warn, you help, you encourage, and you're just willing to keep doing it. It's exactly how God's been with me, man alive. I'm so thankful that he is patient with me. He looks down. He says, look, every time the pressure rises, you seem to live like an idiot. I don't know if he actually says that, but I can imagine him saying that to me. And yet every single time I ask for forgiveness, I ask for help again. I look at him and say, God, I'm desperate for you. It seems like he comes through. And I don't just mean that in some theoretical you know, way like the Bible says. I mean like every time I've needed God's help, no matter if I've needed the help because of my stupidity or not, God has always been there to warn me and to help me and to encourage me in the midst of my struggle. And then in verse 15, just the key, just so key, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. This is where I return to the idea that when we are competing, when we are fighting against other people, it'll never be graceful. But when we are a person that is saying, I want to do what is good for everybody else. Like that, out of, last week I said that we live to please God, we'll be more graceful. But as an extension of that, what God wants from us is, I live to please God and so I will live my life trying to do what is good for others. That is when our lives start to be graceful doing what is good for a person is doing what helps them to live to please God doing what is good for a person is not doing whatever makes them happy doing what is good for a person is not leaving them alone doing what is good for a person is not not you know kind of half-heartedly patting them on the back and saying go get it doing what is good for a person is doing the thing that will help them to live their lives to please God and then Paul says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is impossible if you don't understand the gospel. 
You will not be a person who lives to please God. You will not be a person who can live for the good of others if you are not a person who is striving to rejoice, who is praying continually, who is giving thanks in all circumstances. If you don't understand and believe and and turn to the story of Jesus, if you don't grasp the story of Jesus, then it will be impossible to give thanks to God even in the midst of your greatest struggles and pressure. What we believe as Christians is, is that we are all sinners. I think everybody believes that whether they call it sin or not. You, you, not just like in general, each of you as individuals have done things that are wrong. We can all agree. I won't make you raise your hands. We've done things we wish we wouldn't have done. We've done things that are regrettable. We, we've done things that we wish we could go back and, and have a redo on because we messed things up and we could still see how they're messed up. That's, that's the first thing that I think everybody believes. But, it, but as Christians, what's unique to us is that we believe that because of those sins, we were separated from God. We could not have a relationship with him. And so God looked down from heaven, said, I want to have a relationship with you, but this sin thing, these things you have done wrong, they've separated us. And so he came down in the person of Jesus. He lived sinlessly, he lived perfectly, he did nothing that was regrettable. And at the end of that sinless and perfect life, he died on a cross. But while he was hanging on the cross, he didn't just feel physical pain. He experienced spiritual pain because he was paying for your sins. He was dying for the things that you have done that you know you shouldn't have done. And then three days later, he rose again. And what the Bible tells us, what the guys who hung out with Jesus tell us, is that if we will accept that as true and give our lives to Jesus, then we will have the forgiveness that Jesus offers. The things that we have done wrong, we will have forgiveness for them. I know every person wants forgiveness for the stuff they've done wrong, but you can only have it if you believe this story I just told you about Jesus and then you give your life to Jesus out of it. But when you do that, and I speak from experience now, it changes your perspective on all of life. We can only rejoice in all circumstances And we will only pray in all circumstances and we will only give thanks in all circumstances if we believe in the grace of God, a grace so big that he said, I am unwilling to be separated from you for eternity. I will come and die for your sins. I hate to call it magical, but it's almost magical how it changes your perspective on all of life. Now I want you to notice because it sounds like pie in the sky kind of stuff that that Paul, this author, as he's inspired by God to write this, he doesn't say that we give thanks for all circumstances. And he doesn't say that we celebrate everything that we go through. That would be weird. I've known Christians who try to act that way. It's like, I stubbed my toe. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Like, that's dumb. But what it's saying is that despite our circumstances, we still, we still have joy, not happiness, not excitement, but joy We still look to God and say, God, I need your help. And we still say, thank you, God, for all you've done for me. This, I don't understand why you're allowing it to happen, but I thank you for all that I have in you. I watched Evan Almighty. Uh, Have you ever seen Evan Almighty? Uh, I I watched Bruce Almighty like 100 years ago. I'm sorry not to be so contemporary on my movie knowledge here, but... Now, I never watched Bruce Almighty, and I remember that Evan Almighty, this story about Jim Carrey becoming 
like getting, he doesn't become God, but God gives him all the power for a short time. I remember going into the movie thinking, this is going to be so blasphemous and like awful, and it was actually quite the good message. And, and then I watched Bruce Almighty kind of thinking the same thing because Steve Carell is in it, and it's like, how reverent can this be? But Morgan Freeman, the God character in it, typical, right? Uh, at some point in the movie, he says to Steve Carell, I don't remember any of their real names in this movie, but he says, everything I do is for, is for your love. It's because I love you. And, and this, is, this is said in the midst of the God character, Morgan Freeman, telling Steve Carell, you need to leave your new political career, basically, and you need to build me an ark. And God basically uh, almost torturing him through funny events in order to make him build this giant ark. And it really put me in the perspective, the mindset of Noah and what Noah would have gone through because it's built on the story of Noah's ark, obviously, right? I don't, probably didn't need to say that. Um, and, and I never really thought about Noah as a real person who's working a job. And, and, and all of a sudden, like, God's saying, you build this ark. And, and Noah's got to be like, this is dumb, you know? Like, it's not raining. Like, why am I doing this? And people had to be making fun of him and, and saying, what an idiot. Like, look, what is this guy doing out there? And when you're in the midst of something where it's like, God, this doesn't make any sense. How dare you let that person die? How dare you let me go through this financial crisis? How dare you not take care of me? How dare you not help me? How dare you let me go through this? If you don't believe that God loves you, that he deeply and passionately loves you, that he loves you so much that he was willing to suffer for you, then it will be impossible to turn your eyes to him and say, I can have joy despite this. I will pray to you in the midst of it and I will thank you despite it. But when you believe that God loves you that much, it changes your perspective on any, everything. I mean, in this movie, Evan Almighty, at the very end of it, this, this dam breaks open and like people start dying and, and here's this group huddled on an ark, safe. When you believe God loves you so much, then, then you just trust that whatever he lets you go through is for your good. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22, do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. We need to be people that look for the voice of God, sometimes through others, sometimes through his word. And in all of it, this is the key point. We strive to do what is good for others. And we do that because that's exactly what God did for us. I mean, in Philippians 2, it tells us that, that Jesus humbled himself, taking the form of a servant and then dying on a cross. And he did it all because he wanted what was best for you. And if you are a Christian, then you should be a person who's trying to follow Jesus in that, saying, it's not about me. It's not about being better than the other person. It's not about getting my way. It's about doing what is best for them. Christianity should turn human interaction away from being a competition and into being a cooperation. What we do in church is, is not competition. It's not about getting our way. It's not about what we want and what we prefer and all of those things. It's about fighting for the good of others. We need to be in this life, in this church for others because when we are and when we remember that that's what it's about, we will live more gracefully. It will be the way that we live gracefully. And so, man, I want to close this series by saying, first, strive for a graceful life. 
don't be a drifter. Don't be a person who just learns how to swim and looks like me trying to swim. Man, I tried to train for a marathon once with my brother-in-law, and there was a swimming portion and uh, just cross-training. Oh, man, I look like a fish out of water when I'm in water. It's bad, like just barely struggling to keep my head above water. And, uh, and man, so many of us are satisfied with that type of life. We're people who, you know, learn to doggy paddle or whatever in, in our Christian faith, and, and that's it, and we stop, and we're stuck. But God wants something so much better for you. He wants you to live a life that is beautiful. And so strive to live gracefully. And, and, and that will happen as you learn to live to please God. But the way that you live to please God is by living to, for the good of others and not for the good of yourself. And so many people, man, so many people are stuck just trying to satisfy themselves, just trying to elevate their position, just trying to make their, their own lives move forward. And it will never be beautiful, it will never be graceful. So become a person that lives for the good of others as you strive to please God on your journey to becoming more graceful. Let me pray that that will happen. Lord Jesus, I pray first for, for people here and people who are listening online that have never embraced your gospel as true, that don't love you, that don't live for you, that, that don't have the hope of heaven, that have never been forgiven for their sins. I pray that they would give their lives to you, Jesus. It is impossible in the midst of pressure to, to live gracefully, God, when, when we don't know that we are connected to, to the Almighty, to you. And so I pray, God, that people in front of me, people online, would, would accept your gospel story as true and they would give you their lives because they believe that you gave your life for them. And then I pray for those of us, God, that are that are Christians, that have given our lives to you. And Lord, I pray we would just, just get past ourselves, get over ourselves, really. I mean, far too many people that are Christian, at least in name, God, simply live for themselves just like everybody else. And it's, it's not graceful, it's ugly, Lord. Uh, it's ugly how self-centered people can be when it comes to their expression of church. The story I told today is, it's not isolated, Lord. There's people all over um, the world, God, who are doing church for themselves and they're mad when it doesn't please them. I pray we would never be a church like that, that we would be a church, God, that wants what's good for others and not for ourselves, that we would be a church that, that helps, that encourages and warns others, God, because we love them. But I pray also that we would be a church that is long-suffering, that is patient with everyone, God knowing that, that pressure makes it hard to live gracefully and everybody is facing their own pressure. God, let us be a church that is graceful because we are a church that is striving to please you and as an extension of that, we are working and living for the good of others. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.